Been going through Colossians. Tonight's our last night at, uh, looking at the book of Colossians. I would encourage you to read chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. There's some of the more personal commands where Paul actually addresses specific people in the church. There are things to be learned from that, um, especially things about the church. But tonight we're going to look at verses, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And um, if there's one theme that I hope you've gathered from the book of Colossians or one issue that Paul has been dealing with, it's actually fundamentally this, that there's a difference between religion and grace or religion and biblical Christianity or religion and following Jesus. There are teachers that had come in the church at Colossae after it had been founded and who came in and said, they affirmed Jesus. They said, yes, Jesus, but also. And they proceeded to give people lists of things to check off. They proceeded to give people uh, worship experiences. You need to feel this way in worship. Here's how to feel this way. And it was a Jesus plus gospel. It was fundamentally actually what we'll use the term religion. It was a gospel of here are the things you do. Instead of a gospel of, the word gospel actually has a first century meaning we've kind of lost. When they talked about the gospel in the first century, the word meant good news. And when you heard about the gospel, the gospel was an announcement actually of an emperor or a Caesar coming to power. The word gospel was in common usage and people would say, have you heard about the good news? Such and such Caesar, such and such emperor, such and such king has come to power. The gospel is not the gospel of things you do. The gospel is the gospel of the king. The good news that Jesus reigns. And his reign is a unique reign because it's a reign of grace. Um, Great religion is full of anxiety and insecurity and it results in divisiveness and arrogance and the avoidance of outsiders and people who are different from us. Grace is full of comfort and it's full of security and it's full of rest and confidence and it leads to kindness and compassion with outsiders. And what fundamentally, the fundamental difference is religion relates to God on the merits of your work and grace relates to God on the merits of Christ's work. And so this, Paul's kind of last practical application, if you remember what he does in his letters, he usually does theology or gospel presentation, who Jesus is and what he's done. And then that leads into his practical application. So this is our last look at his practical application Um, how the comfort and the security and the grace of Jesus works themselves out specifically into prayer and evangelism. So this is the Word of God, Colossians 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. And conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's do what Paul tells us to do and pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um... And as we address the issues of prayer and evangelism, these are the two hardest things uh, in my life and the two of the most confusing things in my life. And I pray now that um, these ideas, these things you call us to, would be delights and not burdens. That we'd see by your grace they are sweet duties, dear God. They are not 
um, a way we curry your favor. That dear Lord, I pray that you would extend your grace to us now, the grace of your Holy Spirit, attending to your word and working change in our hearts to become beautiful to us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. <coughs> um, I've gotten to know many of y'all over the years and freshmen this semester and um, there's one thing in particular that if you get to know me, you'll usually, Elizabeth and I together actually, if you'll get to know us, spend a limited amount of time with us, you'll figure out there are certain things that we're excited about. Um, and one of the things we're most excited about is television. Uh, for us, movies are just a way to pass time until good programming comes back on. Movies, the cinema is just kind of second, sec- it's second best art compared to television. And if you get us talking about television... Our two favorite shows, all time, we have this discussion all the time, if any other shows have supplanted these, and they have not, have yet to be supplanted, uh, we happen to own all seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, we also happen to own all three seasons of Veronica Mars. That's number two on our uh, all-time list. We love these shows. I think they're great art. Um, <laughs> And I love to tell people about these shows. And sometimes, or a lot of the times, people aren't interested in hearing me talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But you know what? I don't really care because I love Buffy. And the people I care about and my friends, I want them to see that Buffy is great art as well. Soren, much to his chagrin, finally watched Veronica Mars, our second favorite show. And I think you could probably get him to humbly admit, maybe quietly, that Veronica Mars is kind of actually pretty decent programming. Um, Soren's a dear friend. I wanted him to love the things that I love. I didn't care that he mocked me for it. I didn't care that he thought I should be embarrassed about talking about Veronica Mars. I don't care that y'all think I should be embarrassed about talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You'll mock me for this afterwards, and guess what? I won't care, because it's great TV, and you're missing out. And I'm secretly kind of sad that some of y'all are missing out on great TV. And here's the other thing. This time last year, more of you would have been mocking me. Because there are a couple of people in this room who started watching Buffy, and they've seen that it's beautiful, wonderful, creative <laughs> art. I say all that to say that's actually what evangelism is. Evangelism is connecting people you love with things that you love. More specifically, it's actually committing, connecting people you love with people that you love. I don't care that y'all think I'm embarrassed by Buffy. I'm going to talk to you when you're not interested in Buffy. And some of you are going to miss out on Buffy, and some of you are going to have your lives enlightened by Buffy. Why? Because I love Buffy. That's evangelism. Our children's uh, school has fundraisers all the time. I hate fundraisers. We have to sell chocolate for the co- for Covenant Christian Classical School. Love our school. Hate fundraisers. Hate going around asking strangers to buy chocolate. I'm embarrassed by it. I feel like an idiot when I do it. And the only reason I'm doing it is because I have to. That's the way we normally think about evangelism. We're embarrassed by it. We're ashamed. We don't want to talk to anybody who might not be interested in it. And the only reason we do it, if we ever do it, is just because it's something we have to do. And that's how we normally think about evangelism. And what I want to do is begin to give us some simple tools from this letter that I think help us recover a healthier, kind of more organic sense of evangelism. Because certainly sometimes what it can also 
what it can kind of turn into is a method. Uh, when we say that word, when I say the word evangelism, I can tell as soon as it's evangelism. Everybody freaks out a little bit because we have all kinds of weird associations with that word. You have all kinds of a flurry of images, emotions, kind of ideas, thoughts, pictures of Brother Micah, right, on Green Street. Um, people knocking on people's doors and giving them a survey, altar calls. We've all committed and recommitted and recommitted our recommitments and all that kind of stuff. And we have all kind of thoughts, you know, it's like, it's not for me, it's something other people do. All kinds of emotions, guilt, because we've never really done it, we're kind of scared of it. Awkwardness, because of the one time we tried to do it, and we're like, ugh, this is weird, it doesn't fit. Confusion, maybe, about the times you've tried it, or maybe times that you were evangelized, people ask you, you know, you know, they try to give the spiel to you. We have all kinds of weird associations with it. And my main point, which I'm unabashedly borrowing from a friend of mine, uh, it's really word for word his, is that this evangelism is just connecting people you love with something or someone specifically that you love. The principle behind evangelism is exactly the same principle behind me talking to you about Buffy. The only difference is one is about the salvation of our souls and it's attended to with the power of the Holy Spirit. Other than that, they're actually pretty much the same. It's connecting people you love with someone or something that you love. It's actually something you do all the time. You have high school friends. You came to college. You made college friends. And then what you did is you invited your high school friends, because they're at another school now, to come to college. And you know what they did? They met your college friends. That's evangelism. It's connecting somebody you love with other people that you love. We do this all the time. You do this. You have your RF friends, your Young Life friends, your class friends. I don't know what it is. Your lunch group friends. All the time, you're connecting one group of people you love with other people that you love. That's the fundamental principle of evangelism. You actually work out of that principle all the time. We all do. And so I want us to recover and begin to have that as a healthier kind of understanding of what it is. It's a relational enterprise. It's not a method. It's a relational enterprise enterprise is connecting someone you love with people that you love and two things happen in it and there are two points tonight and they're what Paul walks us through um, in this passage you talk to Jesus about the people that you love and you talk to people about the Jesus that you love those are the two points that's what Paul does in this passage you talk to Jesus You're connecting these two people, the relationships, two ways. So you're talking to Jesus about these people, and you're talking to these people about Jesus. Paul begins it by saying, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, an opportunity to preach, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. The first point of evangelism is talking to Jesus about people. And that is prayer. And prayer also is one of those mysterious, kind of weird Christian words we use all the time, but we're kind of confused about. In our own practice, we're very mystified in. And so prayer, I kind of want to define it simply. It's simply this. It's just talking to God. Don't think about it as any more than that. Communication is the medium of relationships. To have a relationship, you have to communicate with each other. Relationship doesn't exist apart from communication. Prayer 
is our interaction back to God, is us talking with God. The other day, I had lunch with Randall, and uh, he was just briefly telling me about a friend he had who played football at Duke. And then he all of a sudden, he was like, well, that's not entirely true. Randall began to understand without even thinking about it. He's, yeah, he's right there. Um, he began to make a distinction without even thinking about it. He said, I have a friend who plays football at Duke. And then he said, no, 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 that's not entirely true. I went to high school with a guy who now plays football at Duke. He implicitly understood, okay, I know about him. I don't really know him. The difference was I didn't actually relate to him. We didn't communicate. There was no relationship. Prayer is communication. Communication is the medium through which relationship takes place. Paul Miller uh, wrote a great book on prayer, and this is what he says. A praying life, it feels like our family at mealtimes because prayer is about relationship. It's intimate, and it hints at eternity. We don't think about communication or the words, but about the person with whom we are talking. Prayer is the medium through which we connect to God. People struggle to learn how to pray because they're focusing on praying instead of on the person you're talking to. It's the medium of relationship. When it, to focus on prayer and not on the one whom you're praying to is the equivalent of looking at a windshield and not looking through it. It's merely a medium. And Paul gives us kind of three aspects of prayer that he encourages us in uh, as we think about what it means to talk about God, to talk to God, to relate to Him. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The first thing he tells us is continue steadfastly, be persistent. The language is to persist in, to labor in, um, to be constant in it. And it's hard. And the first thing to learn, which Paul is actually recognizing, is that prayer is difficult. He wouldn't have to commend it to us, and he wouldn't have to use strong language if it were easy. It's hard. And that should be encouraging us because I'm not a good prayer. Because on Tuesdays, I think, I don't have time to pray. I've got to prepare tonight. I think what's more important is my personal study habits and not asking God to teach us. It's hard, and we live in a world that's busy, and busyness is how we run away from the scary place of prayer. We've talked a lot about this semester about how Christianity is always a communal enterprise. The only time... Jesus ever talks about something that you're supposed to do by yourself. It's when he talks about prayer. And we're scared to death of being alone in prayer. We're scared of not being distracted. There's always an excuse. It's one of the easiest things to excuse in our life. There are things to take care of. You receive a text, whatever it is. You want to check your email, Facebook, whatever it is. We're not into necessarily giving like a list of things to do in our EF, but here's just kind of a this is not a, here's how you be a mature Christian. This is my personal challenge to everybody, including myself. Try to be alone this week without your cell phone, without an MP3 player, without books, people, television, music, games, laptop, and also this can't happen while you're driving in the car. <laughs> Just try to be alone for 30 minutes without any of those things. And when someone texts you, don't be in a place where you even know that you're getting the text. Put it away. Actually be alone where you don't even have to make a choice between being alone and being distracted. Just try it. And then during that time, try to pray for just 15 minutes of it. I bet it'll be some of the scariest, most confusing, and wonderful time in your week. That's utterly unique in this culture to do something like that. That's utterly countercultural. And if you don't know what to pray because all of a sudden it's weird to actually not 
be distracted for an entire 30 minutes or maybe even 15 minutes, then pray confused. That's okay. God accepts confused prayers. He understands them. Paul reminds us to pray because prayer is hard, not because it's easy. And prayer is not the way you get favor with God. It's the way you talk to God. He tells us to be persistent in it. Because it's hard, he tells us to be watchful in it. Uh, When this word watchful comes up in the New Testament, it's always actually used a very specific way. In Luke 21, verses 34 through 36, Jesus tells people to be watchful, to be wakeful, and pray for the return of the king. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, he talks about being wakeful and alert for the day of the Lord. Matthew 24, 42, again, be alert, be awake. This word watchful is also the word wakeful for when the king comes. The sense watchful is a sense and actually, there's, a, there's one sense in which it's actually being watchful in the world to what God's doing. But more specifically, actually what it means is anticipating the return of Jesus. That that's a part of our prayer life. And there's no more powerful reminder that this world, as we receive it and deal with it today, is not always going to be this way. There's no more powerful reminder that it's not always going to be this way than if we are constantly in anticipation of the return of Jesus in our prayer. How would it dramatically affect your day if all day was laced with prayers for Jesus to come back? It would force you to no longer despair that this is all there is. It would be a constant reminder that life is not, I've got to try to find some meaning, try to find distraction, try to find some happiness, try to get some things, and then experiencing some pain, some failure, and some loss, and some dying. It would be a constant reminder that that's not the way life is. It would be a constant reminder that the way Sam Gamgee put it, that all that is sad will come untrue. That our little joys, the little moments where finally kind of life works for a couple of minutes, where life feels right, we're trying to fill our longing for joy with those little moments, and those little moments will pale in comparison with the return of the king. We keep wanting life to have meaning, so we do things, we try to acquire things, we try to get social significance, whatever it is, and we grow desperate, and so we try to distract ourselves. And the king and his return is the thing that our souls are longing for. There's no other reason for hope. Apart from Jesus, there's no other reason for going to uh, to Greece. Apart from Jesus, there's no other reason for friendship or love. Apart from Jesus, all those things are a means by which we can use people for our own personal pleasure until they can't do it anymore, and then we let them go. But the ever-present kind of anticipating hope, the longing that we're trying to quiet and appease with stupid things like football games, waiting for the weekend, finally getting the job, finally getting the guy or the girl knows you, whatever it is, the longing that feels like it's killing your soul and so you're trying to distract yourself from, The only thing that can fill it is the return of the king. So pray, being watchful, being hopeful, anticipating the return of Jesus. Some of y'all have experienced incredible pain you don't think anybody else understands, and maybe nobody does. There are things that have happened in your life that you think you're the only one. And first of all, you're not the only one. But secondly, you're hoping that something in this life is going to fix it, and I don't know if it will. 
I don't know if it will. But when Jesus comes back, all that is said will come untrue. Pray, being watchful for the return of the king. Pray persistently, being watchful, but lastly, also being thankful. Pray with thanksgiving. You see, access to God, the mere act of prayer, is a gracious gift from God. Our access we have to God is a gift. You see a consistent theme all throughout Colossians 1, 3, chapter 1, verse 12, 2, 6, 3, 15, 3, 16, 3, 17. And now in these verses, if Jesus is the theme of Colossians, the second most prominent theme is thankfulness. And our call to prayer is a call to pray and pray in thankfulness. And prayer itself is something to be thankful for. It's a reminder of the access we've been granted with God. Before Elizabeth and I got married, she's from Jackson, Mississippi, uh, we went down and would visit her family. And there was a coffee shop that I liked to go to that uh, her dad liked to go to called Cups. And in the back of the coffee shop, there's a private club that was a cigar room. And it was very cool. And, of course, anytime you see something you can't be a part of, you want to be a part of it, right? I wasn't permitted in there until I became Bill Hayes' son-in-law. And then when I became Bill Hayes' son-in-law, I was granted access, not because of who I was, but because of the name that was put upon me. Prayer is a constant reminder of the access that we've been given to God by receiving the name of Christ. In the Old Testament, if you read some of the old confusing books at the beginning of the Bible, things like Leviticus, things like Deuteronomy, you'll read these weird passages about these weird ceremonies that take place um, or in Exodus as well, in the tabernacle or the temple. And what the tabernacle was, was it was actually the central place of God's presence in Israel before Israel settled in the, in, uh, the promised land. And what the temple was, if the tabernacle was a tent, the temple was the building set in Jerusalem where God's particular presence was. And if you read those passages, there are all these weird ceremonies about how there are these levels of approach to the temple. There's the outer part, there's the outer courtyard, and then the, uh, the foremost of the inner part, there's the Holy of Holies. And there's this series of sacrifices and ceremonies that have to take place for you to go into each of those rooms. And they're elaborate, and they're bloody, and they're smoky. And the, the Holy of Holies can only be gone into once a year on the Day of Atonement by this priest that has to go through all these purification ceremonies. And the point of all of it is this. To get to God was really difficult. To get into God's presence was really difficult. You had to go, access to God was messy, it was hard, it was expensive, it was time-consuming, and it required death. But what happened when Christ died? Something happened in the temple. The temple curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world was torn. We were granted access. Everyone who comes to faith in Jesus is granted access unto the Lord. All the sacrifices, all the priestly work didn't save the Israelites. It pointed them to what Jesus would be, what Jesus is. He's the final sacrifice. He's the true sacrifice. He's the priest, the one true priest. It was his blood that was shed. It was his death that was required for us to have access to God. There's nothing that reminds us more of our humble estate before the king than constantly addressing him on his throne and realizing we have no right to be there. And that the only thing that qualifies us for his presence 
is the blood of the Lamb shed for us, the robe of, Christ, uh, of Christ's righteousness that we read, that, that we receive. What God sees, when He sees those who have taken hold of Jesus by faith, when He looks at you, He sees Jesus. And you have access and all the privileges of Jesus before God. The thanks of the Bible is a joyful recognition of the reception of an unearned gift. So you don't thank your boss for your paycheck. You don't thank your teacher for your grades, unless it's a grade you shouldn't have got. You don't thank cops for tickets. Because those are all circumstances in which you get exactly what you've earned. Gratitude is the joyful recognition of the reception of an unearned gift. And if you find little to no thankfulness in your heart, we've got to ask the hard question of why. And it's because of this. It's because we still are prone to relate to God according to our actions instead of according to Jesus' actions on our behalf. And this is why we think it's our heart and it's our actions that make us suitable for God's presence. And it's here we have to kind of address one of the most prominent themes in the New Testament. The larger barrier, the biggest obstacle to people coming to Jesus and coming to have faith in Him in the New Testament is not their bad stuff. If you read the Gospels, the people with bad stuff, the people who get caught in their junk and their messiness, don't have a lot of trouble actually coming to faith in Jesus. The people who have the hardest time coming to faith in Jesus are the people with all the good stuff that do the good things. What we often fail to see in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees is that it's actually the Pharisees' belief that they are doing religious things better than others. It's that belief that actually puts them further from understanding Jesus than other people in the New Testament, for instance, like people who earn money by having sex with other people. They implicitly get Jesus better. See, it's the good stuff, it's the righteousness of the Pharisees that prevent them from understanding grace because they think they have a righteousness. We think we have good stuff to offer God. And their trust was in their good things and not in Jesus. Their significance is not in Jesus, but their ability to do good works. This is why Paul reminds us of his own resume in Philippians and says, if you want to compare your religious resume, go read Philippians and see Paul's got you beat. And he says it's all loss. He doesn't say it's neutral. He says it's loss. But for the sake of Christ, your best stuff's not good enough. It doesn't set you apart and it doesn't justify you. It doesn't curry favor with the Lord. As long as you think it is, you'll find yourself with little thankfulness. And you'll find yourself further from understanding grace than even the prostitutes who find Jesus sweet. It's by grace we're saved. And prayer is our conversational response to God about His grace and His love and His work of saving and renewing and changing us. And foremost in us at, in talking to God is asking Him to do it in the lives of others. Talking to Jesus about the people that we love. And we see it primarily as His work. Even when we labor to tell people about Jesus, it's His work. It's only, it's only when you kind of realize... Okay, here we have Paul, who wrote most of, or half of the New Testament. And Paul's saying, yeah, I'm an apostle. I write, and when I write, it's the word of God a lot of times. I need you to pray for my ministry when I do evangelism, because God has to be there. Paul can't change people. You can't change people. You can't argue any, anybody into trusting in Jesus. Talking to people 
about Jesus without talking to Jesus about people reveals that you think you can make them a Christian without Jesus. Not even Paul can do that. If you talk to people about Jesus without talking to Jesus about those people, it reveals that you don't think you need Jesus to introduce people to him. We don't just talk to Jesus about people, we also talk to people about Jesus. Paul asked for a prayer specifically in his own ministry. That, uh, there will be opportunities that gospel will be presented to clearly. And then he begins to give the church at Colossae um, some principles for actually thinking about talking to people about Jesus. Um, he doesn't give us a method. He doesn't give, uh, he just gives some kind of guidelines, some actually in a sense of wisdom. He says, conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so, we know, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. A lot of these concepts, these things like being wise toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. There's some kind of like interaction and overlap between these. For instance, when he says, conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, and then at the end of the passage, he kind of puts it in this bookend, um, have your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt was this phrase or this terminology they would use in the first century to say actually speak wisely. So he's repeating, speak wisely. Salt was something that made your language, uh, they used the image and the idea of salt. Salt made food richer tasting. He would say uh, when your language is seasoned with salt, it was richer. It had savor to it. It had something to bite into and to hold on to. It made everything richer. Um, It is speaking wisely. It's actually even being witty and pithy at times, speaking well. And see, to speak, the first thing Jesus kind of or Paul gives us is to be wise, to have your language seasoned with salt. And wisdom is this, and this is imperative for us to get. Wisdom is the opposite. Wisdom and evangelism is the opposite of the big evangelistic rally, which we've all been to. I'm not saying they're all bad or that people don't come to Jesus, but wisdom is just the opposite of it. Paul's saying. Yeah, you're not doing that, so what you need is wisdom. Because wisdom is the opposite of the book with the five steps. It's the opposite of the four questions, and it's the opposite of the two pictures you draw, whatever it is. Wisdom's the opposite of all of those things. It's not a method, or it's not, it's not steps. Wisdom is art, is what it is. It's what you do in your relationships when the books run out. The way Piper says it is, wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. It's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It's creativity, and it's tact, and it's thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment and an eye for where people are and bringing the the gospel to them in that place. See, when Jesus came, he could have gone about proclaiming his message however he wanted. He could have just gone around to every town, preached in the square, and said, here's the deal, y'all are sinners, I'm the Savior, repent, have faith in me, we'll get it taken care of. That's not what he did. He came down into individual, unique situations, and he addressed people where they were. His language was seasoned with salt. It was wise. He developed the art form of knowing people and bringing the gospel to their particular situation. What that meant was there were people at a party, and he gave them wine. That's how he taught the gospel to them. There was a thirsty woman, and he gave her water. There were religious people, and he gave them rebuke and warning. There were traders, tax collectors, and he gave them company. 
There were hungry people, and he gave them food. It was the same message every single time, but it was presented wisely within people's situations. To some, it was sweet because that's what they needed. They needed comfort in their brokenness. To some, it was confusing because that's what they needed. They needed to think through the implications of it. To some, it felt like death because that's what they needed. And it was always the same story, but it was given wisely. It was given uniquely to people in their situation. And the application for this point is simple. To do the work of evangelism, you've got to know Jesus and you've got to know people. You have to know Jesus and you have to know people. You have to know the many facets of Jesus' love, the many facets of his holiness. And then you have to know the people that you're praying for. And you have to discover and know the many facets of the ways that they're experiencing the brokenness of this world. All of us have tasted deeply of the broken world, and we're all trying to convince each other that we haven't. Wisdom and evangelism is figuring out where people are tasting it most poignantly and introducing them to Jesus in that place. Paul says, conduct yourself wisely, making the best use of your time. The word there is buying up or snapping up time, any opportunity, any moment. And this, in a sense, kind of goes along with that watchfulness theme of this urgency, this sense of Jesus coming, the sense of any chance you get to talk about Jesus. Any chance you give me to talk about Bubby, I'm going to do it. Any chance you give me to talk about Alabama football, I'm going to do it. We should have that same enthusiasm with Jesus. And many of y'all, I don't know if Breck's here tonight, but if you talk to him, he had some friends die earlier this semester. Death is imminent. It's nothing that makes you feel urgent like death. And so when windows are provided, snap up that time. When people let the way they've experienced the brokenness of this world, snap up that time. When people let their emptiness show, we all pull off our curtains for a little while and let everybody see, or our dear friends see, how the world has broken us and how we have broken ourselves. Those are the moments. Those are the times. And they're simple, and they're not hard. Here's the easy thing Les Newsom at Ole Miss said, just follow people's pain. We're all wearing our pain. We're trying to convince the world that we're not in pain. We're all wearing our pain somewhere. We're all hiding our insecurity somewhere. It's not that sophisticated. We're all pretty simple in the ways we hide it. Go to those places. Those are all opportunities. Opportunities in our lives and in others. We're to be wise in it. We're to be enthusiastic or urgent in it. But we're also to speak graciously. Let your speech always be gracious. See, it's not just the content of the message. It's actually also the form in which you communicate it. This is why we weep over stinking Brother Micah, even though he's actually not preaching the gospel. What's actually more frustrating than him not preaching the gospel is the way he goes about doing it. His manner, his style, as well as his content, they both betray Christ. As we bring people to Jesus, the manner in which we do it... um, should just as much communicate the gospel as the words with which you do it. And it goes beyond just the tone of words. This is not just gentle in tone. There are times when you have to be strong in tone. This has to go with the ongoing witness of our lifestyle, the love and the patience and the kindness and the mercy and the compassion of Christ being in our lives. And that's hard. It's not just the form. It's not just the content. It's also the form. What we're doing what we've been trying to do in RF, what we continue to try to do here as brothers and sisters laboring for the cause of Christ is to do what Paul is hoping to do, declare the mystery of Christ. 
And kind of in conclusion, I just want to remind ourselves of the mystery of Christ, of what it is that we're trying to communicate. Who is the person we're trying to connect to the people that we love? And you see, fundamentally, we're either going to try to give people religion or we're going to try to give people grace. Are you going to try to give people religion or try to give people a person? And there's a world of difference between evangelism of a religion and the good news of the king. To bring people into religion is to bring people into work and despair. A list of boxes they have to check off and then from them to move on, they've got to check off more. They've got to wake up earlier. They've got to do more things. There are these spiritual giants in front of them that do more. And there's always somebody that does more than you. And you'll always feel insecure. Religion will always make you feel insecure because there's always somebody doing more than you. If religion is relating to God on the terms of what you do, you're committed to a life of insecurity. Someone's always doing more. You're also committed to a life of arrogance because there are plenty of people that are doing less. If religion is you relating to God on the merits of your work, there are always people doing less. That's cause for arrogance. You can look at everybody else and they're idiots because they don't get it and they don't do it the way you do it. They don't wake up early enough, whatever it is. See, grace is relating to God according to what Jesus has done instead of according to what you have done. And grace brings confidence instead of insecurity. In religion, you're insecure because other people are always doing more. In grace, you're confident because Jesus did it all. In religion, you're arrogant because you're always doing more than others. In grace, you're humble because Jesus did it all. For you, just the way you are. He wasn't surprised by the sins that keep surprising you. He's already paid for them. He's not fooled for the sins that I'm trying to pretend don't exist. He already paid for them. You see, this profoundly affects evangelism. The religious person is trying to make people who appear morally upright just like them. And so they disdain the people that don't buy in. The people who are born of grace are trying to produce or are trying to introduce people to the person they love to the person who lived for them to the person that died for them and these people who are born of grace they actually just continue loving the people who don't buy in and the only difference between them and the people they disagree with is not their well-reasoned arguments or their religious lives it's just the unmerited mercy of Jesus You weren't saved by your doctrine. You weren't saved by your practice. You were saved by Jesus. The gospel we're trying to bring to the world is this. We have nothing. And Jesus is everything. Let's pray.